We are continuing <laughs> this morning in a series uh, focused on the revelation of Jesus Christ. We're titling it Alpha and Omega because that is the title that the Lord uses for himself, that Jesus Christ uses for himself to remind us that he is the beginning and the end, that he has a plan that began in eternity past that is gonna continue to the end and the renewal of all of creation. The beginning and the end, the Alpha and the Omega. And he has told us things, he's given us wisdom, he's given us insight into what is to come, not just so that we have information to log away, but instead he knows that our future understanding, our future knowledge, it transforms our present understanding. He has given us these promises so that we will know more about the future, but that that would transform the hope and the guidance that we lean upon in our present day. God loves his people. He wants their best. This is something that we see repeated in the book of Revelation. And this morning, we're gonna be looking specifically in Revelation two and three. Uh, we'll be spending most of our time in Revelation chapter two. So if you have your Bible and wanna turn there or wanna go there on your phone, we're in Revelation chapter two. And we are seeing these, these seven different letters that Jesus Christ is sending to churches at that time. And every single one of these letters, we're gonna be looking at one, the first one in particular, but they all hold kind of the same themes, the same ideas. They all describe Jesus' love for his church. They describe what Jesus desires for his church. And they all, they all contain promises of what Jesus is going to reward his church with. Because that's what you do with someone you love, right? If you love someone, you want their best. And that means that at times, you're gonna help show them a little bit of tough love. Like sometimes you're gonna provide correction and redirection for them. And other times, you're gonna reward them. You're going to affirm and applaud and encourage when they're living the way that they should live. That's, that's a part of loving someone well. My wife and I have seen this play out as we've raised our three small children, ages seven, five, and three. We've had a lot of opportunities to love them well by providing correction and reward and encouragement in their little developing lives. Uh, our five-year-old just started kindergarten this year, and you don't have a ton of responsibilities as a kindergartner. Right? There's not a lot of reading or you know, writing, not getting a blue book every week and having to fill it out with you know, these short answers, tests and things like that. But one of the things, one of the responsibilities you do have as a kindergartner is that you go to school with some stuff and you're supposed to bring that stuff back home at the end of the school day. This is something that our five-year-old uh, is learning slowly uh, because what we discovered this last week is that it's challenging to keep track of maybe everything. For example, uh, our son, our five-year-old, he went to school and he brings you know, everything in his backpack. He's got a folder. He's got his lunchbox. He's got his water bottle. And we were just like, hey, remember, bring these things back, right? We're just like kind of taking it for granted. But we realized one day this last week, uh, it's kind of hard because he came home without his water bottle. We were like, hey, no big deal. Right? Like that happens, right? We all forget some things sometimes. I don't know how many umbrellas I've just lost to the world, right? Like that's, it's something that happens. So we told him, hey, we're sending you, you know, so day two, we're like, hey, here's another water bottle. Make sure you bring home the water bottle you left yesterday and then also this one we're giving you today. Yeah, 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 okay, okay, cool. So, hey, bud, how many water bottles are you supposed to bring home today? Two water bottles, okay, great. How do you bring them home? Put them in my backpack, okay, great. End of the second day, no water bottles, all right? We are now down two water bottles. We're like, all right, bud, so day three. All right, dude, we're not sitting you with a water bottle today, right? The Lord is, has given us abundant provision, but he has not given us three water bottles. So you have, you've left both of your water bottles at school. You need to bring both of those home. 
You're going to just get water in other, other ways, right? It comes out of faucets. Don't worry. You're going to be hydrated, but you're going to need to bring both of these water bottles home at the end of the day. Yeah, 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 for sure, for sure. Okay, how many water bottles should be in your backpack? Two. Two water bottles. Okay, when do you bring them home? When I come home. Okay, great. Yeah, that was a bad question. But okay, so you need to bring these two water bottles home. End of the third day, it comes home. One water bottle, right? One, which isn't bad, not bad, but he left his lunchbox. We're like, okay. <laughs> All right. We're now down. So if you're keeping score, we're now down one water bottle and one lunchbox. Now, after a few days, you know, a few days after that, that was the weekend. And so then, you know, come the next day, we, we now have, don't worry, we now have two water bottles and a lunchbox in our home. God is good. Like, he has moved. His power is great. We don't need donations. We're okay. But what we realized, what my wife and I realized is, wow, this is something that we're going to have to continually keep our eyes on. We're going to need to be aware of what's being taken to and from school every single day because we love our son. We love our children. And as I said, when you love someone, when you want to care for them, when you want their best, what that does is it creates opportunities to correct at times and to reward, to encourage. When he managed to bring both water bottles and his lunchbox home, dude, we had a, it was a blowout. It was a party. It was like, way to go, dude. You did it. You're a man now. Get your driver's license. Get out of here. Like that's, that was what we did. We celebrated the fact that he was able to maintain a grip on what he'd been given, right? To be a good steward of his resources. When Jesus is talking to this church, when he's writing these seven different letters for seven different churches at this time of the, the writing of this letter of Revelation, he is going to go through the same process with every single church. He's going to affirm to them his love, his care, that he cares about them, he wants their best. He's gonna then offer correction for every single one of these churches. He does give some direction. He reminds them of what is true, of how they should be living, of, of the commands that they need to obey. But with every single one, he then also affirms the promises, the reward that's been promised to those who belong to him. All right, so he begins in Revelation chapter two, starting in verse one, where this is to the angel of the church in Ephesus, write the following, all right? So Jesus is addressing this to the church in Ephesus. We talked about this last week, but there's these seven angels that are, given, that are overseeing these seven different churches. And this could be an angel as in a, like a spiritual being. Um, it could also simply be the human, the person who's in charge of that church, right? Because the, the Greek term here is just for messenger. So it could be used either way. Regardless, either way, this is a message that's meant to go to the entirety of that church. This is a message that's meant to be followed, to be heard and obeyed by all the believers in these local bodies. And he says this, this is the solemn pronouncement of the one who has a firm grasp on the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands. So Jesus begins every single letter by introducing himself. And what's interesting is that with all seven letters, it's a different description. In this case, he's reminding them that, hey, I'm the one who has a firm grasp of you. I'm the one that's walking among you. This description that we have in Revelation 1 of how the seven stars were the, the messengers of the churches, the seven lampstands were the churches themselves. He says, this is who I am. And at the beginning of every single one of these seven letters, he uses a different description that all comes from Revelation 1. And I think he's doing this intentionally because he recognizes, hey, you're facing a variety of issues. There's a lot of uh, nuance. There's, there's different facets of your lives and your struggles and your victories. And in the same way, he says, remember, I'm, I'm able to meet you in every circumstance because just as your life is varied, so too am I your savior. Remember that I'm here. I'm equipped. I, I'm, I'm in control of every circumstance, of every situation you find yourself. 
So he's giving this message of comfort. Hey, I'm the one who holds you. I'm the one who walks among you. And then in verse two, he says, I know your works as well as your labor and your steadfast endurance, that you cannot tolerate evil. And you've even put to the test those who refer to themselves as apostles but are not. And you've discovered that they, have, they are false. So right here at the beginning, Jesus is offering affirmation. He's encouraging them by reminding them, hey, I know what's going on. I am aware of what's taking place. I see your struggle. I see your service. When he talks about this idea of knowing, this Greek term is very intentional. It's a knowledge that is full and complete, that's perfect. It says, I have a full knowledge of what you're facing, of the work that you're doing, of the service that you're undertaking. I'm aware of your labor. The Greek term here is this idea of, of working to the point of exhaustion. So it's not just service, it's sacrifice. And he says, in all of this, I've seen your steadfast endurance, your, that you are continuing even when time is, even when it's hard, right? Even when struggles hit, you are, you are standing firm for my sake. I'm aware that you also have persisted steadfastly, endured much for the sake of my name and have not grown weary. So Jesus is affirming to the people in these churches. He's affirming to this church in Ephesus, and it's true for us today, that ultimately we can trust, we can believe, we can take comfort in the fact that Jesus sees our service, that he sees the details of our lives, that we don't escape his notice, we don't escape his sight, but instead every moment of every day is in fact under his control, that it's within his, his knowledge, his perfect and complete knowledge of our lives. And that's something that maybe we know it, but we don't always feel that, right? I think Jesus is reminding the people of this because he knows it's easy for us to kind of drift and think like, oh, God probably doesn't care about this moment or, you know, these things that are just sort of mundane. These kind of day-to-days, like I'm having the same conversation with my roommate or I'm going to another class to learn these things or I'm going to work and I'm doing the same job. And it's easy for us to just become complacent and think that the day-to-day, the moment-to-moment the mundane is just, it doesn't really ultimately matter because we think it escapes the sight of our Lord. Our three-year-old, uh, currently, one of his goals in life is to be a ninja. And not just when he grows up, but like here and now. He's like, I'm, I'm a ninja. And I'm like, all right, cool. Like, let's see where this goes. And one of the ways that that plays out is one, he kicks his brother a lot, so that's not great. But another way that plays out is that he has decided, he knows that ninjas are super sneaky. And so one of the things he loves to do is sneak around our home and try to surprise me or my wife and be like, whoa, boo, like, oh my goodness, like, where'd you come from? The problem is that he's really bad at it, right? Like, he's, ter- he's three. And so it's never surprising. It's never, he's not that sneaky. Like, he'll try to, you know, go and, like, hide behind walls or he'll, like, crawl under tables, but he's very loud and, you know, noisy. And sometimes he gets caught right out in the open. It happens all the time. But when he gets caught out in the open, what he does is if he knows that I'm, I'm like, about to look at him. I'm trying not to look at him, right, because I'm trying to play along, but every once in a while, I'm like, accidentally make eye contact. I'm like, uh-oh, right? And then, because then I know he's going to be really sad that I foiled his ninja plans. But his response is amazing. He's decided that, you know, that's no big deal, because if I happen to see him out in the open, he just freezes and closes his eyes. <laughs> and with his eyes firmly shut, he tries to just, like, go over and bumps into things, but like gets into a, a new hiding spot and then just keeps going. And then eventually like pops up like, boo, right? And he'll, oh my goodness, where'd you come from? I'm like, buddy, wow, my heart. You know, like that's, 
That's his goal. And he'll tell us. What's so interesting is every time that happens, he'll always recount. I'll be like, where'd you come from? He's like, I was sneaking around the house. He's like, you almost saw me. Like, but I shut my eyes and you didn't see me anymore. I'm like, ah, not, okay. You know, like, let's, we'll let it slide for now, right? But that's, that's not true. He thinks, he's so sneaky. He thinks that he escapes my sight. But the reality is, I'm very aware. I'm very aware of what's happening in his life. Same is true for us. That even though we feel like, oh gosh, I'm just going through the motions, I'm going through the paces, it's one, another day, another thing that I've done a hundred times before, we in our minds think like, oh, well, it probably just doesn't really matter. We trivialize our day-to-day, our moment-to-moment, when the reality is that God is deeply and intimately aware of what's happening. This is what the psalmist says in Psalm 139. He takes comfort and hope in the fact that, Lord, you examine me and you know me. And you know when I sit down and when I get up, and even from far away, you understand my motives. You carefully observe me when I travel or when I lie down to rest. You are aware of everything I do. See, the psalmist takes comfort in this truth, that God sees me, he's aware, he examines me, he knows me. This is that fullness of knowledge. And it's not just about the external circumstances, he's aware of my motives. He sees the outside and the inside the external circumstances and the internal motivations. He says, you're aware of everything that takes place, of everything that I do. And this, for us, should be encouraging to recognize that there is value even in the mundane, that the Lord sees our service even when it's hard, even when it just is the same issue that pops up time and again, that God cares deeply about how we're conducting ourselves, about whether or not we are obeying his commands in every situation, in every moment, in every circumstance of life. God says, I see you. I, I recognize this. And I, I love, I love you. Right? I see you and I'm aware because I love you ultimately and I care about what's taking place in your life. So how do we really walk in that? Well, I think part of it is that we come to the Lord on a regular basis and we, we say, we, we, I think, should be talking with the Lord in prayer about, God, this is what's coming up. This is what I'm worried about. Or God, this is what I'm frustrated with. Or God, this is what I'm excited about. And as we bring those things to the Lord, it's not that we're revealing new knowledge to him, but it's we're reminding ourselves that, God, you, you already know. Like, you already care. You already see me. You're always with me in every circumstance, in every situation. God cares about our day-to-day and he loves us and it's because he loves us that then he offers direction and correction when we stray from his will. This is what Jesus does for the church in Ephesus. If you'll read with me in verse four. He says, I have this against you. You've departed from your first love. Therefore, remember from what high state you have fallen and repent. Do the deeds you did at the first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. That is, if you do not repent. So Jesus is giving this sort of charge to the church in Ephesus. And again, he does this for seven different churches, these seven different letters. And they're all in slightly different circumstances. They're all struggling with different things. But for the church in Ephesus in particular, he's saying you have lost sight of your first love. You've forgotten what it means to be fully and wholeheartedly devoted to me. You've been caught up in labor and in, and in you know, duty and obligation and obedience, and those things are good, but labor is never a substitute for love. Right? Discipline is never a substitute for devotion. So he says, I want you to come back. 
I want you to come back and remember the high state you were in, right? One of the ways that we return to to true abiding love for a person or for a pursuit is by remembering what brought it about in the first place, right? We can read the parable of the prodigal son. As Jesus is talking about how this one son, he, he took his inheritance early, he ran away from his father, and he lives this life that ultimately leads to his own kind of failure and destruction. He gets to this really low point in life. And what brings him back to his father, what, what causes him to run back home is that he remembers what life was like in fellowship with his father. He remembers what love really was, where life was truly full and fulfilling. Jesus says, I want you to remember what brought you here in the first place. Remember that you are the product of my love, of my grace. So remember that and then repent. Change your action. Repent, literally, just to, to turn around and run the opposite direction. He says, I want you to believe, right, to come back, to set your heart where it should be and then let your actions follow. Do the deeds you did at first. Literally, the term here is for that, those deeds is he says, return to the first works, meaning the foundations, the basics. As a church, we talk a lot about spending time with the Lord in prayer, about spending time with the Lord in his word, and about spending time seeking the Lord in community. And you're gonna hear us talk about that here at Southwood week after week after week after week. Why? Because we recognize that those first works, that that foundation is really, really important. That the basics are basic for a reason, that the foundation is, in fact, foundational to our faith. That we talk with the Lord, we, we, under, we study his word, and we walk alongside of fellow believers. Those are all crucial for our spiritual development. Jesus says, I want you to commit yourselves to those first works, because if not, you're gonna lose your light. If you lose your love, you're gonna lose your light. I'm gonna remove your lampstand. Not that he's saying, I'm gonna cast you out of my presence. It's not that I'm gonna, you know, you've been doomed, like your works just don't add up, right? We're always saved by the grace of God. It's not that our works prove ourselves worthy of his love or his acceptance. It's never the case. But Jesus is saying, if you live a life that's disobedient, if you live a life that's more about your comfort and your desires than my own, he says, what you're gonna do is you're gonna lose your ministry. You're gonna lose your effectiveness. Your life is gonna be wasted if it's spent after your own personal pursuit over mine. So we need to take that. We need to recognize that that is significant. That Jesus is saying, you're gonna lose your witness. You're gonna waste your life if you don't repent, if you're spent seeking after your own will over maybe keeping your own checklist, your own boxes, because ultimately he says, I want you to be devoted first and foremost to me to remember your first love. I've been a part of a lot of weddings over the years. I've officiated a lot of weddings. I had my own wedding at one point. And when those take place, there's always a moment of vows. And what I think is so amazing about vows, I've seen a lot of different vows. And some of them are like traditional vows. Some of them are people just like sit down and they write them out. And what's so amazing is that in those vows, when a husband and wife, when they're looking across at each other and they're reading these, you know, this, this, this incredible statement of love and affirmation and commitment, what happens as they read those vows, as they declare these, these things to each other, it is always focused around devotion. It's always focused around where their heart is gonna be. They say, I'm, I, I love you, and I wanna serve you. I'm gonna sacrifice for you, right, through thick and thin, rich or poor, right, sickness or health. Like, I, I wanna give all that I am to, for your sake. That is, is repeated in the vows. It's, it's all about the sort of initial motivation rather than just the, the day-to-day details. 
My wife and I recited vows to each other. We talked about our love and our commitment to one another. I, didn't ever, I never said to my wife in our vows at our wedding day 12 years ago, I never said, hey, when you are tired and need a break, I will take our boys to Home Depot. And I didn't say that. I do that, right? But I didn't say it. I didn't say it at the beginning, at that moment of our wedding. Why? Well, first of all, I could not have foreseen how much I would value Home Depot as a dad. It's just something unlocks in you, and you're like, yes, it's where I belong. Come, boys, let's be men. You know, like that's, that's something that changes that I didn't know, I didn't expect. But also, I recognize that all of those, you know, those details, what they do is they flow out of the initial devotion. Like all of those actions, they, fo- they flow out of my, my core attitude. And so I need to affirm, I told my wife, this is why, uh, you know, this is how I'm gonna conduct myself, out of love and service and sacrifice. Jesus says, I want you to remember why you do what you do. It's not just about checking a box. Is obedience important? Absolutely. Do the details matter? Definitely. But ultimately, God cares not just about what we do, he cares about why we do it. But it's easy for us to sort of check those boxes without checking our heart, without checking our motivation. When there's conflict in our home amongst our kids, we have a practice that we always come back to, which is where if if two of the kids get in trouble, let's say the one brother, let's say a ninja kicks another kid, right? It happens in our home. And so if one of our sons kicks the other son, after, you know, we kind of like, the tears die down and, you know, we mop up the blood. Like whenever we get to that moment where it's kind of resolved, every single time there's conflict, we say, okay, you need to go to your brother. You need to apologize and ask him to forgive you for doing what you did. You know, be specific. So will you forgive me for kicking you in the head? Okay. And then the other brothers will say, yes, like I'm going to choose to forgive you. I'm going to choose to show forgiveness and grace. And then after they say that, after that's been affirmed, they're supposed to hug And as they hug each other, they say, best friends forever, right? Because we want them to remember, you guys are gonna be in this for a long time. Like, this doesn't go away. You're always gonna be brothers. You're always gonna be brother and sister. Like, this family's forever. It doesn't go away. And so they used to, you know, when they were really little, they would just kind of do that, like, wholeheartedly, like, oh, yes, you know, like, oh, family's forever. It was a beautiful thing. But they're getting older now where they kind of, they're beginning to question some of the truths that my wife and I are speaking. And they begin to question, like, do, are we, is this forever? Do I want that? And so what happens is now, some of the times when they're supposed to hug, they just sort of like, they found a loophole where we say, okay, now you need to hug. And they just sort of like stand against each other. Just kind of like lean their chest. They're like, cheeks are touching, but they just kind of stand there. Sometimes their arm maybe like flops up. And we're like, hey, friend, you know, friend, best friends forever. And then they walk off. Why? Because they're like, I'm just gonna check the box. I'm just gonna go through the motions. I'm gonna do what I know I'm supposed to do. But their heart's not in it. They're not actually motivated. They're, they're, their heart is in the wrong place. And the Lord, he says, I, I care about your obedience. I also care about your heart. And this is what he said through the prophet Hosea to the nation of Israel well before the book of Revelation. He says that I delight in faithfulness, not simply in your sacrifice. I delight in you acknowledging me as your God, not simply in your whole burnt offerings. Does God ask for sacrifice and ask for offering? Yes, he's not, he's not denying that that's true, but he says, I care about what's behind that. I also care deeply about your faithfulness. I care about the state of your heart and your mind and your motivation behind the action that's you know, according to my will. So yes, I want you to obey. Yes, I want you to keep my commandments, 
But I want you to remember that it's, it's out of love that you do these things because it's out of love that I'm asking you to do it. It's a, it's a loving relationship. God wants our best, and so we need to recognize the value of our motivation. And now this isn't an excuse if we feel like our motivation isn't in the right place. I saw this with students all the time when I was in college ministry. They're like, well, you know, I just don't really want to be nice to my roommates, so like I could pretend to be nice, but like, you know, it just does them a disservice, right? My heart's not in it, so I'll just like, you know, whatever, park behind them and not move my car, you know, whatever it is. And that's not an excuse. Like the Lord has told us, in Philippians he says that the Holy Spirit is at work within us both to will and to work for the sake of his name. That in other words, that we should be asking the Lord to change, not just, not just modify our behavior, but also to transform our desires. And he says, I'm gonna do that. My Holy Spirit is all about that. He, his work, his job is to change, in fact, the desires of your heart. Our women's, or sorry, our children's director, a woman named Julie Dickerson, she sees this in children's ministry, talks about it all the time, where she says, there's gonna be times in your life where you have a duty, something that's been given to you. It's a command that you need to obey. Sometimes you just need to do your duty. Sometimes you just follow the command that's given to you. She says, and you can trust that over time, that duty becomes a discipline, that you no longer need this external, like, okay, make sure you do this, make sure you do that. Like, it can become an internally motivated discipline. Maybe you still don't really want to, but you're like, okay, I know this is important. I'm gonna be disciplined in this area. And by the grace of God, he can then take what was a duty that became discipline, he can transform it into a true desire of our heart. He can renew our hearts and our minds to actually truly delight in obeying him and following his commands because he's given us these commands knowing that he, or because he wants our best. Because it's not that he gives us these commands because he wants to deprive us of the full wonders of the world outside of his will. He knows that actually the best life is one that is directly aligning with his heart and his desires. That's where true life is really truly found. So he says, I, I want you to commit yourself to obeying my commands, right? Even if you don't want to, that's, it's still important. But then as you obey, pray, ask the Lord to transform your heart and your mind. You'd be renewed more into the image of Jesus Christ. You would actually desire to obey him. And he's faithful to do that. He's faithful to transform. And Jesus says, as you rest in the knowledge of my love, as you accept the correction that I offer, he says, there is reward there's affirmation, there's encouragement that awaits for you. He closes out his letter to the Ephesians like this. In verse six, he says, you do have this going for you, that you hate what the Nicolaitans practice, practices I also hate. So it's interesting, he gives them a little compliment sandwich, right? He affirms what they've committed themselves to. He says, hey, but you're, you're slipping up, you've left, you've departed from your first love. And then he comes back to some affirmations, but hey, you left your first love, but you still hate what you're supposed to hate. That's pretty good, like, I'll, you know, I'll take it. And, and there, there are other moments in these other letters, this, all seven letters, there's, there's other moments where we have specific groups that are being called out. There's a, someone called Jezebel, and there's this reference to Balaam and these, these false teachers or these, these, these threats to the church. And in every instance, it's these people that are seeking to pull the people of God away from God's will, that are pulling people towards directions that aren't of Christ. The Nicolaitans in particular, we have other recordings of their activity from the church fathers. And we know that uh, even that term, Nicolaitan, it's, it's this idea, the definition of it is these, these people who are somehow lording over others, who are conquering other people, that as best we can tell, they were creating some sort of tiered system within the church, saying like, oh, well, you know, 
you're just kind of a level one Christian. Like you could get level, level four if you just you know, do these things or obey these commands, if you follow my teaching. And that's wrong, right? Jesus is saying, I, I hate that. That is not at all according to my will. I've never asked any of you to conquer one another. In fact, he says, I, I've come to be a servant and so should you. Live a life that's, that's poured out for the sake of others in line with the will of your God, of your Lord and your Savior. So he says, good job, right? Ignore the teachings of these false people. And then he gives this promise. He says, to the one, let the one who has an ear, or the one who has an ear better hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He says, to the one who conquers, I will permit him to eat from the tree of life that is in the paradise of God. This is a repeated refrain in all seven letters where Jesus makes a promise to the one who conquers. And there's discussion around who exactly is he describing. Uh, one train of thought would say th this is for the Christian who is faithful, who keeps the commands of the Lord. Uh, I think that's uh, problematic. I think it's difficult to make that case because uh, we all still fail. Like at what point is, you know, when do you cross that line? Like where's that line in the sand being drawn? Like how do we know what true perseverance or true conquering really actually is? Because at some level, I'm having to make my own judgment call. I, I think that's faulty. Uh, the other train of thought where I, where I land is that this is a description that's used for all believers. That ultimately, our, our conquering, our victory, it doesn't come from our ability. It doesn't come from our accomplishment. Our victory comes from Jesus Christ, who conquered death, who conquered sin, who conquered all the enemies that we face. And so we are joined with him. We, we don't work for our own victory. We work from his victory. And he says, so to, for you, for all of you who belong to me, he says, you need to recognize that this is what's ahead. And it's a different promise in each letter. And, and all of these letters, they have a different promise, but they all kind of speak to this internal reward, this eternal glory. In this case, he says, you're gonna be permitted to eat from the tree of life that's in the paradise of God. And this is an incredible promise because the, his readers, the people who are reading this letter that are hearing his words, they know what the tree of life is. They know that the tree of life is a real tree that exists in the Garden of Eden. That when God created humanity to live in perfection in fellowship with himself, he gave them a tree of life and they would eat of this tree. And it gave them, it sustained them. And when they sinned, when Adam and Eve chose to follow their own will over the Lord's, when they chose to bind to this lie that God didn't really want their best and they needed to kind of strike out on their own, when they sinned, when they departed from his will, God forbade them then to eat from the tree of life. It was a mercy. He says, I don't, I don't wanna let you live in disobedience and in this destruction that you've brought upon yourself forever. I don't want you to live in that state forever. So I'm gonna actually keep you, I'm gonna withhold this tree of life from you. So he casts them out of the garden and says, you don't get to eat from that tree anymore. You're gonna die. You're gonna experience death. This life is gonna end for you because you've chosen to follow your own will over mine. But what Jesus is saying here is he says, that tree, it didn't just go away. He says, this tree is planted it's real. He says, and if you belong to me, if you have put your faith in me, you've trusted in my victory, in my conquering power, he says, that's a tree that you will get to eat from again. That this is a, an experience that you have waiting for you in the paradise of God. This is the beauty of our gospel. That, that God created humanity to live in perfection, and yet our failure, our sin destroyed it. It broke it. And so in our imperfection, in our failure, in our brokenness, God saw us and he loved us too much to leave us alone, to just let us continue in that, in that destruction. And so he sent his son, Jesus Christ, out of heaven and onto earth to live the perfect life that Adam and Eve and none of us could ever live, 
to die the death that we all deserve because the wages of sin is death. And so Jesus Christ, he who knew no sin, became sin for our sake. He took the sin of the world upon his shoulders and he died a death on that cross. And then he rose again on the third day to prove that his power is greater than the slavery, than the, than the power of sin and death and failure that previously held us captive. And so God says, you can call upon me, you can rest upon me, upon my work, on my grace. That's how salvation is found. That's where life is obtained. It's by his grace through our faith in Jesus Christ and his completed work and his completed life and death and resurrection. And Jesus says, this is a power that is given to you. This is a promise that's been given to you, not because you earned it, not because you deserve it. It's not that you've worked yourself to a level, you've persevered enough to where now you've climbed the ladder and gotten to the tree. He says, this is a promise that I'm giving to you simply because you belong to me. This is my promise for you. This is what I'm calling you towards. This is the comfort that I'm offering, the promise that I'm making, that there is reward, that there is fulfillment, that there is life found for those who belong to him. And yes, we seek to obey. Yes, we make room for the spirit to be strong in our weakness and to lead us in a life where we walk by the spirit and not by our own will. But the reality is that in that perseverance and that pursuit of following Jesus Christ, we're gonna fail, and it requires repentance. This is what Paul told the church in Corinth. He says, therefore, I, so that I would not become arrogant, a thorn in the flesh was given to me, a messenger of Satan to trouble me so that I would not become arrogant. And I asked the Lord three times about this that it would depart from me. We don't know exactly what this fault was in Paul. We don't know if it was a physical ailment. We don't know if it was a struggle with sin. But he says, there is something that the Lord has allowed me to struggle with, this thorn in my flesh. He says, and God has allowed it to remain so that I would be dependent upon him, right? So that I wouldn't become arrogant. And he said to me, my grace is enough for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. So then I will boast most gladly about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may reside in me. Therefore, I'm content with weaknesses, with insults, with troubles, with persecutions and difficulties for the sake of Christ. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Paul says, I have to remember God has given me this struggle so that I will remember that ultimately I am a product of his grace. That ultimately I'm always gonna be weak, even when I think I'm just, just crushing it. But the reality is, my work will never impress the Lord. My work will never be perfect. Therefore, I'm missing the mark of holiness that God has set. And therefore, I need to remember that my weakness is expected by the Lord. And that God, in his mercy, shows up in that weakness and brings his own strength. This is why it's important for us as believers to recognize the value of our confession that we would come to the Lord and we would admit our fault, we would confess our failure, not because it's new information for him. Remember, he's fully aware of every moment of every day of our lives. But as we confess our sin to the Lord, what it does is it's creating space in our hearts, in our minds, to accept, take comfort and hope in his unconditional forgiveness. It's what John wrote in an earlier letter that he wrote well before he wrote Revelation. That if we do not bear, if we say we do not bear the guilt of sin, well, we're deceiving ourselves and the truth's not in us. But if we confess our sins, God is faithful and righteous. He is forgiving us our sins, cleansing us from all unrighteousness. Because our confession sets the stage for the Lord to pour out his mercy, to pour out his grace. It's sin that Jesus has already paid for. His death, 
It's complete. It was sufficient. So it's simply a matter of us. In our confession, what we're doing is we are aligning ourselves with that truth. And we're recognizing, God, I, I need your grace every day. I need your mercies that are new every morning. And in doing so, we are rightfully setting ourselves under the mercy of God. We don't become arrogant. We don't become boastful because we recognize, hey, I'm the, I'm the product of the Lord's work and I'm here for his continued work on this earth. So as we continue to, to set our sights on the things above, as we continue to seek to live lives following after the Lord and following in the will of Jesus Christ, the reality is we're gonna make mistakes. And that's why God has given us community. That's the reason that God has given us fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, that we would see the value not just of, of seeking to follow the Lord on our own, but that we would see the strength that comes in community. And one of the ways that that, that plays out in our midst is through prayer, right? I talked earlier about the prayer cards that we have in the seats, and that's great, and we would love to pray for you. If you wanna fill us one out, still, you can hand it to someone on your way out. Another way that I think is very valuable for us to pray with one another is not just in those individual moments. It's not even just in the prayer that's led from the stage. Those are valuable, but one of the ways that I think it's really powerful and important for us, valuable for us to pray, is with one another in this room. And so what we're gonna do before we take communion and remember what Christ has done on our behalf, we're gonna take a moment and be transparent and honest with one another. And we're gonna pray for one another. We're gonna support each other. And my, my encouragement or my request is really simple, that you would find someone, right? So maybe it's a few people that you came with. Maybe it's someone that you don't know yet and you can introduce yourself really quick. But grab a few people around you and take some time to just share, hey, this is where I know that I can draw more closely to my first love for Jesus, right? It's that initial charge that he gave to the church in Ephesus. Says you gotta remember that, that height you're at. You remember your first love. Don't depart from it. And so maybe consider before you share, like, briefly, like, okay, like where could I draw more closely to my first love for the Lord? Is it in the time that I set aside to spend with him over the course of this week? Is it the, the way that I conduct myself in different relationships or in different responsibilities? that I could hand over to him? Is it time that I could set aside to, to study his word? Share that with a partner. Just, and you can be as specific or as vague as you want, but share very briefly with your partner or a couple partners. Hey, this is where I would, I would really benefit from your prayers, that the Lord's strength would be made powerful in my weakness, that I would draw close, that I would commit myself to my first love for Jesus Christ. Share that very briefly with your partner and then pray for one another. So find your partner, share, Pray, I'll wrap us up in a couple minutes. Race that go.